from Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the, to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off 
so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So too they will have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has now known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Ted. Let's ask God for his help as we come to this passage. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the one who gives wisdom and understanding. And we ask you now that you would help us to understand what your word says here. And Lord, that you would work through your word in our hearts to humble us before you and help us to continue in faith in the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Imagine for a moment that it's after dinner time in the Rowe household. Uh, This particular night, we're all lying around in the lounge room and I'm reading a novel out loud to the family. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Now imagine that we get to the part where Aslan kills the White Witch. She drives a stone knife deep into his heart. He is dead. Lucy and Susan are crying over his body. Everything seems lost. Suddenly, I snap the book closed. Well, that story sucks, kids. That's terrible. C.S. Lewis must be a horrible human being. Right, I'm throwing this stupid book in the bin. Kids, it's time for bed. What do you think the kids would say? They'd say, Dad, you can't do that. You've got to finish reading the story. Keep reading. You see, they understand, and we understand too, that you can't stop the story partway through. You have to get to the end to understand everything that's happening. Otherwise, you don't get the whole picture. It's true of novels, but it's true when it comes to the story of God's promises to Israel too. If you can remember back to where we were up to in Romans last term, you'll remember that Romans 8 left us with some incredible promises. If we trust in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for us. God promises us a future glory that can't even be compared with our suffering now. And nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. But that raised the question for us, remember? What about Israel? What about God's chosen people? Has God kept all his promises to them? And if he hasn't, how can we possibly trust him to keep his promises to us? Paul answered this question for us from a few different angles that we saw last term. Chapter 9, we saw that salvation has always been about God's choice to show mercy to those he's chosen. And because salvation is entirely a work of God's mercy, it actually means we can be more confident in God's promises, not less. And in chapter 10, we saw that what's happening to Israel is also about Israel's responsibility to respond to the gospel by trusting in the good news. Good news that they've actually rejected. So does that mean that God has rejected his people? Is that it? Is that the end of the story? No way. We have to keep reading. We have to keep reading to see that all this is actually part of God's plan. God's plan to use Israel's rejection of the gospel to reach Gentiles from all over the world and ultimately for God's work through the gospel to drive Israel to jealousy so that they turn to him in faith. And all of this, it's not just abstract theology. This chapter actually has real implications for us. See, not only does this chapter strengthen our confidence in God's promises, it actually humbles us before God's mercy, it calls us to continue in his kindness, and it drives us to praise him. We're going to see this in five parts this morning. 
Now, I put them on the screen. I didn't get a chance to put them in your bulletin this week. We're going to see that even now there is a remnant of Israel. We're going to see God's plan for Israel. We're going to wonder at God's humbling mercy to us, We're going to, which actually leads to God's mercy for Israel and ultimately causes us to cry out to God in worship. We're going to have to move pretty quickly because this is a long chapter. So let's get into it. First, we're going to see that even now there is a remnant of Israel. Chapter 10 ended with God holding out his hands to a disobedient people who refused to believe the gospel. And so Paul raises the very question that we might ask from that. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No way has God rejected his people. Paul's going to show us that all through the history of his people, there's always been a remnant of chosen by grace that God is saving. And the first proof of that is actually Paul himself. He's a part of Israel too, but he hasn't rejected the gospel. He's found salvation in Jesus Messiah. And in fact, Paul's doing what God always intended his people to be doing proclaiming the good news to all nations to call everyone everywhere to to faith in the God of Israel. Paul shows that God hasn't given up on saving or using his people. But Paul's not the only one. God has been doing this throughout Israel's history. Paul gives us another example from Elijah the prophet, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. For Elijah, it looked like he was the only Israelite left trusting God. But appearances can be deceiving. There was more to the story. God hadn't forsaken Elijah or his people. He was working out his plan to show grace to a remnant of his people. And it's the same thing now when Paul is writing. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The Romans might look around and they might see so many Israelites rejecting the gospel, but appearances can be deceiving. There's more to the story. God is still working just as he always has. He is saving a remnant of his people by grace. And it has to be by grace, doesn't it? We've already seen from Romans how we reject God in our sin, how our sin means that we can't seek God or please God or love God. Unless God chooses us in his grace, we could never choose God on our own. But because Israel has rejected this gift of grace and sought righteousness through their own works, as we saw at the end of chapter 9, God has hardened them. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy and from Isaiah, which quotes Deuteronomy, to show that this has been happening throughout Israel's history. 
God hardens in judgment those who turn away from him. Verse 9 and 10, Paul even quotes Psalm 69 to show that this hardening was just retribution for Israel's sinful rebellion against God's grace. But God is still showing his grace to a chosen remnant, just as God has always done for his people. God hasn't rejected them. He continues to graciously keep his promises. But the story's not finished yet. We have to keep reading because Paul also shows us God's plan for Israel. Again, Paul asks a question that's probably on our minds, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Their stumbling and hardening isn't the end of the story. It's for a purpose. It's part of God's plan so that both Jews and Gentiles can hear the gospel and be a part of God's people. Now, Paul's describing here a process and he's going to talk about it again and again through this passage in different ways so it might be helpful for us to break it down I've got a diagram first the gospel gets preached to the Jews now while some of them believe many of the Israelites reject the gospel and because of their rejection the gospel gets preached to Gentiles instead and the Gentiles believe in the gospel but as the Gentiles respond in faith, as they grow to be more like Jesus together, some of the Jews get jealous. They see that the Gentiles are enjoying the promises of God and they're not. You could say that they get FOMO, that's fear of missing out, if you haven't heard that before. See, they don't want to miss out on all of God's promises that the Gentiles are enjoying. And so they come to faith. These Israelites, because of their jealousy, come to believe in the gospel. And then Paul says there, verse 12, if their hardening means riches for the world as the gospel is preached to and believed by all people, then how much better would it be when they believe? Their belief will mean greater riches for the world. Now, Paul doesn't spell out exactly what those greater riches are. Perhaps he means our resurrection when Jesus returns. But he's saying that if God brings about so much good from their unbelief, how much better will their belief be? And Paul's going to point us back to this process, this plan, again and again in this passage. But I think it's worth seeing that this is not actually a once-off linear plan. Paul's not talking about different stages in history. We move from one to the next to the next. I think he's actually talking about more like a cycle. He's talking about a process that happens whenever the gospel is preached. A great example of this is when Paul preached the gospel in Corinth in Acts 18. First, Paul goes to the synagogue where he reasons with the Jews every Sabbath and he tries to persuade them of the gospel. Some believe, but many of the Israelites, they reject the gospel and they oppose Paul. And so Paul literally goes next door to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Many of the Gentiles believe. The Jews are jealous of Paul and they oppose him, they try and stop him. But later some, 
many, maybe even including the synagogue leader Sosthenes himself, they come to faith and the church in Corinth is enriched by being a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles. This process is there. It even happens today. I heard a podcast recently where a Jewish Christian shared his testimony and a big part of his conversion was jealousy. His Christian friend had a relationship with God that he wanted, praying to God as his father, sure of his salvation in Christ. So he heard the gospel and he believed. This kind of gospel envy is often the way that God uses our witness and lives as Christians. And this process actually shapes the way that Paul does his whole ministry. God has given him the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean that his ministry has nothing to do with the Jews. He makes a big deal of his ministry so that his Jewish brothers and sisters are driven to jealousy and to faith. Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles... Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. But what does all this mean for us Gentiles? Is this just abstract theology, kind of nice to know, but not that important? No, through this, Paul actually wants us to see God's humbling mercy to us. And he wants us to see how that should shape our attitude to God and to Israel. Paul gives us an illustration from the olive grove, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. There are probably some gardeners amongst us here who will get this easily. But think of an olive tree. Some of the natural branches, that's the Jews, have been broken off. They've been pruned because of their own disobedience and unbelief, cut off from the life-giving root of the tree. But out of God's surprising mercy, some branches from a wild olive tree, that's us Gentiles, have been grafted into the tree instead. And we now share in the root. Now, Paul doesn't spell out for us exactly what the root of the olive tree is here, but I think it's probably Christ and all God's promises that we get to share in because we're connected with him. He is and always has been the true nourishing root of God's people. All God's promises are fulfilled in him. And so we Gentiles, who don't have any natural claim on God's promises, through faith get to share in all God's promises in Jesus. This should absolutely wipe out any hint of arrogance or pride we have towards others, especially towards the Jews. We should remember that we aren't here because of how good we are. We don't support the root. The root supports us. It is all God's mercy. But if others were broken off so that we could be included, doesn't that give us a reason to be proud anyway? Verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul's warning here is for all of us. Whether you attempted to look down on Jewish people or not, all of us can be proud about who we are as Christians, arrogant when it comes to our salvation. We can forget that we are only ever saved by grace through faith. We've seen that over and over again through Romans this year. See, rather than being arrogant about our salvation, we should be thankful, thankful for God's humbling mercy that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with his grace. And not only that, Paul says we should fear. This isn't the terrified fear that's afraid that any misstep will mean that we are cut off. This is the right respect of children, of sons, who live in gratitude, obedience and dependence on the God of the universe. As God's adopted children, we should remember our place. If God didn't spare the natural branches when they refused to believe and rebelled against him, why do we think he'll treat us any differently? Now, we need to step very carefully here. Because Paul is not trying to erode our confidence in Jesus. He's not trying to undo the promises that he made in chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he is warning us against presuming on God's grace. True faith is humble faith that accepts God's gift and doesn't assume God owes us anything. Instead, it continues to humbly depend on God in all things. Don't you dare presume on God's grace. Don't think that you can continue living in sin assuming that God owes you forgiveness. Don't you dare assume that God owes you grace because of how good you are or how consistent you are or how faithful you think you are. Watch out for that sinful heart that begins to look down on others and say like the Pharisee, thank you God that I'm not like them. Presuming on God's grace like this is a sure sign that you haven't really understood God's mercy after all. We haven't had true faith to begin with if we presume on God's mercy like that. Instead, continue in humble, grateful dependence on his mercy. Never forget his kindness to you in Jesus, his grace, although you don't deserve it, his love that nothing can separate us from. We can have confidence in God's mercy, but don't presume on it. Instead, continue in humble, grateful dependence on God, and God will keep his promises. But God's mercy isn't just for us. Paul has got more to say about God's mercy for Israel. Now, I think Paul's next section here, I think it cuts off a few mistakes that we make when it comes to how we think about Jewish people. Some Christians think very badly of Jewish people. Some have even participated in oppressing the Jewish people. The worst examples are things like the Holocaust or pogroms in Eastern Europe. Even reformers like Martin Luther said some awful things about the Jews. But Paul's really clear that God's not finished with his people. He is working through the proclamation of the gospel, even to Gentiles, to make them jealous and bring them to faith. 
God's promises are sure and steadfast. They're irrevocable. Other Christians believe that the Bible encourages us and maybe mandates us to be pro-Israel in a political sense, to support the modern nation-state of Israel because the Jews today are still entitled to the promised land and the temple site in Jerusalem. But I think that tends to ignore the key place that Paul gives to the gospel here. The modern nation-state of Israel doesn't acknowledge Jesus. They are continuing in the unbelief that Paul is talking about here. Sometimes this view even comes from a belief that the Jews don't even need the gospel, that because of God's promises they'll be saved anyway. As if there's two ways to be saved, faith in Jesus or being born a Jew. But look at what Paul says in verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary by nature to a nature in a, to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul longs for his people to stop their unbelief, to put their faith in Jesus, to be grafted into the olive tree again. And if God can do that for us Gentiles, then of course he can graft Jewish believers back into their own tree. But it's only through faith in Jesus. That is the only way to be saved. Joseph Steinberg, he's the CEO of the International Mission to the Jews. He, he once spoke at a Jewish missions conference urging people to get involved in Jewish evangelism. And afterwards, a Jewish advisor to the Archbishop of Canterbury stood up and rebuked him publicly for saying that Jews needed Jesus because they have their own way to God and we Christians shouldn't interfere with that. But that absolutely flies in the face of Romans 9 to 11. Jews desperately need Jesus, just like everyone else in the world. And so the best way to be pro-Israel is actually to share the gospel. If they don't persist in their unbelief, if they trust in Jesus as Messiah, God will readily graft them back into their own olive tree. He hasn't given up on his ancient people. There is still time for them to be saved. I don't know about you, but I don't know many Jewish people in my life. But we can at least be praying for them, right? Praying that God would work in the hearts of Jewish people, that they might turn to Jesus in faith and to be looking out for opportunities to share the gospel with them, just like we do with everyone. Because there's still hope for them. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's going back to the steps of God's plan for his people because he wants us to be humble and to share the gospel. Now, now these are very tricky verses. What does it mean when Paul says all Israel will be saved? Some people say that it's Israel as a term for the whole church, Jew and Gentile. All the church will be saved. But, but here in Romans 9 to 11, Israel seems to always be ethnic Israel. 
But that can't actually mean that every person ever born descended from Abraham will be saved. That would contradict chapter 9. And it would mean that there's no reason for Paul to share the gospel. There is no other way of salvation except through faith in Jesus Christ. I think Paul is probably talking about elect Israel here. Like in chapter 9 where he says, Not all Israel is true Israel, but only those that God has chosen to show mercy to. Paul is saying that the elect of God's people will be saved. But the focus here, in verse 26, is on how. It's in this way that all God's elect among the Israelites will be saved. Paul is saying that it's through the proclamation of the gospel, the jealousy of the Jews and faith in Jesus, that is how God will bring about his salvation for his people. Now, is this verse saying that at some point in the future, a huge number of Jewish people will be saved through faith in Jesus? Is this verse about the end times? Well, I think maybe. It's possible that that's what Paul is saying. It's possible that at some point in the future, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, there will be an influx of Jewish people trusting in Jesus through the gospel. That would be wonderful. But this would be the only place in the Bible where we read that. And we should be careful about basing something on just one verse. Because Paul could also simply be saying that over the course of history, Jewish people will keep being stirred to jealousy and coming to faith in Jesus through the gospel. And through this, over time, all of God's elect amongst his people will be saved. I think we'll just have to wait and see. Either way, it is through the gospel that God is going to keep his promises to his people. And so we need to keep praying for God's people, to keep sharing the gospel and keep humbly depending on Christ, remembering that for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, it is all through God's mercy. Which brings us to our last point. All of this should cause us to respond with worship. All this talk of God's mercy should well up in praise for our great God. A God who is beyond us, greater than us, wiser than we can comprehend, more merciful than we can imagine, more generous than we could ever deserve. This is the right response to the wonder of the gospel. Not just what we've seen here in Romans 11, but everything we've heard in Romans so far. There's so much of God's plan of salvation that should just leave us in awe of who God is that we are rebels against him in our sin, deserving his judgment, unable to earn our salvation, yet he graciously gave his own son as a sacrifice for us. That this is a free gift that we simply receive through faith. That through Jesus we are reconciled to God, that we have hope and peace in him even though we were enemies. That we are united with Christ, made alive in him and set free from our slavery to sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for us who have been saved by grace, given his spirit and adopted as his children. That nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. That salvation has always been about God's choice to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. That we have a responsibility to respond to the gospel with faith and to proclaim it to others. And that God's plans aren't finished yet. He is still working through the gospel to show mercy to his people. All of this humbles us before our great God. 
and causes us to cry out with Paul in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled by your mercy to us. Lord, we are unnatural branches grafted into Christ and to your promises, even though we had no claim. And yet you have shown your mercy to us even when we were your enemies. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are still working through the gospel to bring people to salvation, both Gentiles and Jews, as they see the work of the gospel in your people and as they grow in jealousy. And we ask that you would stir up Jewish people in jealousy that they might turn to you in faith and trust through Jesus. We ask, Lord, that the gospel would be proclaimed to them and that many would turn to you in faith and trust. Father, we pray too that you would be at work in our hearts. Help us this week to remember and be humbled by your mercy to us. Lord, for those of us who are comfortable, who presume on your grace in arrogance, please confront us, discomfort us, and cause us to run to you in dependence and faith. For those of us who are uncertain and unsure, please grow us in confidence and certainty in Jesus. And for all of us, please help us to respond by praising you for you are above us and beyond us and more wonderful than we can imagine. And we praise you, our God. In Jesus' name, amen.